One of the, the, I think, the big takeaways from my time at Timberland was, especially as the market got more and more competitive, was deal, really good deals are hard to come by. And if you find one, you act quickly. Yeah. You know, you don't mess around. So I, I will tell you, there's been plenty of times when a good site has fallen in my lap on a Friday afternoon or a Friday night or a Saturday morning. I can wait till Monday. More than likely would have been fine if I waited till Monday. <laughs> But I have that drilled in my head that when they come around, you don't you don't wait. Yeah. So like that very first site I, I flipped came to me on a Friday afternoon, and I had it I had an LOI by Monday morning. And you know I worked all weekend. We just had a baby. I told my wife I'm sorry, but I, you know we got to eat. I got to feed this kid, so we're gonna make this happen. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but I worked I worked all weekend to, to make sure that it was ready. And that that was a big takeaway from from my time at Timberland was like, look. You don't, when there's a good one on the line, you don't mess around, you get it done right away. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey, guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Fort I have Sean Sweeney with me, who's the co-founder of Hall Sweeney Properties up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Today is a deep dive into Sean's career, but really we kind of go through the step-by-step nuances of building infill kind of class A multifamily properties, things from 40 units all the way up to a couple hundred units. And we talk about uh, where there's risk through the process, all different stages of entitlement. We talk about picking contractors and architects and designers and uh, what happens during stabilization and how they're financed and and equitized. So it's just a very deep dive on multifamily development, Um, something that I think everybody can leave this episode with a pretty good understanding of how it works and why it is uh, worthwhile work, but why it's also very challenging work. So thank you so much for continuing to join me on this journey, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Sean, welcome to the show. Hey, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. Man, I'm excited about this one. Uh, We're going to have a great conversation today. But before we do, let's get started with kind of your background and kind of what led you to today. I know you have an interesting fact that you started as a receptionist in the real estate industry and and here you are. So let's hear it. All right. Sounds good. Yeah. I I think that I probably compared to most folks uh, that are general partners in in various ventures at this point, probably took a little bit of a a weird winding road to get here. But yeah, so I I started, I was one of those kids in college, went to University of Wisconsin, had no idea what I wanted to do. Family wasn't in business. Parents weren't in business. It was never something that was really even discussed at our house. Ended up just you know majoring in communications. Got to the point where I was just ready to kind of be done with college and, and and move on. And I actually moved to Chicago after that and spent a little time trying to be an actor. Took a bunch of acting classes. Was in a couple of commercials and and filmed a few movies. Didn't you know nothing huge. Nothing ever really uh, took hold. But it was a fun thing to do from twenty two to twenty five and uh, gave it gave it a whirl. Have some good stories, but unfortunately that's about all I have to show for that. That period. Um, <laughs> after that, you know, like a lot of liberal arts majors uh, back then, the default is go to law school, right? And started exploring that. My my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, uh, was planning to move from Chicago to San Francisco to go to graduate school. 
I liked her and figured, hey, I'm going to come along for the ride, uh, see what happens. Ended up deciding not to go to law school, but I spent a bunch of time trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And actually had an uncle back here in Minnesota, of all places, who uh, had just converted an old prison to apartments and condos. A really cool project. And was talking to him and, and just talked to a bunch of folks, you know, in, in all kinds of industries, trying to say, you know, what, here's what I think I'm good at. What, what's out there? And of course, you know, had never heard of development, didn't even realize there was people that uh, created the buildings. I somehow figured they just showed up one day and uh, somebody <laughs> built them. But what, once I kind of understood what it was about, I, I thought, man, I, you know, I like design. I like architecture. That sounds super cool. Like, I want to get into that somehow. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a lot older than you. So it was back in the day when, you know, you, you looked you looked on Craigslist for jobs or monster.com. And then you sent <laughs> cover letter, you mailed in the mail cover letters and resumes to people uh, with the hopes that they would call you on the telephone and invite you to their office for an interview. Needless to say, with, with three years of acting experience and a liberal arts degree, I wasn't very attractive to developers for some reason. I'm not sure what, uh, why I didn't get a lot of calls, but uh, I, I got none. And as luck would have it, I kind of got to the point where I'm like, look, I just, I just need to get in the door somewhere. Like if anybody would even have a cup of coffee with me or a conversation, like I just need somebody to point me in the right direction. And, you know, as luck would have it shortly after that, I, I had applied to a receptionist job at a development firm. Cause again, my goal was like, just get in the door, right? Somebody, maybe they're going to say you're ridiculous, but here's three people I know that might need somebody, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And long story short, I ended up getting a call about the receptionist job, drove an hour from my apartment after work one night to meet these folks. Didn't mean anything to me at the time, but it was Trammell Crow uh, Residential in San Francisco, which apparently means something now. But uh, at that point, I had no idea who, who I was talking to and what I was getting into. But they they thought I was insane. And I basically just said, look, I, I want a job in development. I will do anything it takes. Coffee, copies you know, what, what have you, I'll do it. I just want a shot. And they, for whatever reason, thought I was just nuts enough to give me one. And I, I literally was commuting an hour each way to be the receptionist for a $40,000 salary at age 26. And every friend of mine in the world thought I was insane. My girlfriend thought I was nuts. But, it, you know, it was a gut feeling kind of thing. And I decided to make the decision to do it. And I'll tell you that making that decision, Chris, was a, obviously what got me started, but B, was one of the things in my path that was a great learning lesson for trusting my gut, right? It didn't make yeah. any sense on paper what I was doing, but there was just some feeling I had that like, I think this could work out if, if I do it right. And anyway, I, you know, I hustled like crazy. I, commi- I, I commuted. I was the best damn receptionist there was for about six months. <laughs> and, and you can imagine, you know, guys my age at that point are, are lenders, right? I mean, they're coming in for meetings with yeah. these guys. You know, it's it's my peers and my bosses did a great job of embarrassing me and making sure that I would get coffee and copies. And they let everyone know I was the receptionist for a long time. But about a year in, you know, we got really busy. Timing was good, and and um, they had more projects than they had hands. And at some point, they just said, "Hey, you want to take one?" And I said, "Sure." Had no idea what I was doing, of course, but had somebody looking <laughs> over my shoulder and. After about a year and a half of being a receptionist, I, I moved straight into being a project manager. Two, three, four years after that, I was an associate partner with them. And it, it just kind of went from there. Was there something... Because I, I love that story of just getting yourself in the door. Like, How do you 
position yourself as a receptionist to be someone that could take on a project? Where, did you just kind of let everybody in the firm know your desires and dreams? Were there things you were kind of doing that, that signaled that you were you know, a good person to tap on when, when it was time? Yeah, a couple, a couple of things that happened and then probably a couple of things I did also to, to, to kind of keep that going. I mean, one, just frankly, the fact that I was commuting an hour each way you know, was assigned to them of like, okay, he, he's obviously serious because this is ridiculous otherwise. <laughs> uh, and there was a, a vice president, there was a kind of a third guy at the firm, uh, you know, under the partners and above me, who was doing a lot of the project management. And, and he came to me three, four months in, and he was overloaded and just said, Hey, do you know how to do Excel? And I lied and said, Oh, yeah, sure. I know how to do Excel. And he started throwing spreadsheets my way. And I'd go home at night and try to figure out, you know, Excel and how to work it and, and all that. And, you know, a couple months after that, he came to me and said, you had no idea how to do Excel, did you? I said, no, I didn't. But he was <laughs> like, I, I'm impressed that you went home and figured it out on your own time and, and whatever. And I, I started asking the principals like, hey, are there finance classes I should be taking at night? Like, what can I do? I was pretty vocal and active about what can I do to be more valuable to you guys? What can I do to add more skills to my, you know, knowledge base? I I took a couple of finance classes in San Francisco. I flirted with a part-time MBA at Berkeley while I was working under them. And funny enough, they said, look, you can go get an MBA at Berkeley, but then when you're done, you're going to have the same job with us you have now. So maybe, maybe it's not worth it. Just learn, just learn from us. So you know, I, I was pretty active and vocal about you know, wanting to move up and wanting opportunity. And they threw me a bone eventually. I love it. It's a common thread amongst people that um, have found success in their career. They let the folks around them know where they're headed. I think it's the biggest you know, piece of advice I give to young people all the time is nobody can help you get where you're going if they don't know where you want to go. That's an awesome story. I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, it, it, it's worked out. It's one of those where right, they always say you can connect the dots looking back, how it all works out. But yeah, at that time, it was you know, most people for about the first five to seven years of my career thought I was nuts. Absolutely. Yeah. Nuts. So glad it worked out. <laughs> I love it. So you, you move up at Trammell Crow Residential, which is an incredible company. They're, they're actually based down here in DFW or they were. So very, very familiar with them. What was the, the next step between there and starting the company that you're currently running? And, and I should clarify, Chris, just it's tramp the, the the actual entity name I worked under was Thompson Dorfman Partners, but but Will and Bruce who had run that they had run Trammel Curl for a long time on the West Coast and then broke off and, and had their own firm. After I left, they they repartnered with Trammel, so it's been kind of in and out of Trammel. But got it. Um, that's the firm. So two thousand eight, and my date my dates are a little fuzzy, but let let's say sometime in two thousand eight, uh, they called me into the office and they said, "Look, you've been working with us for five years." You've been doing a great job. Yeah, we're still paying you peanuts. Um, you know, you've run a couple of projects for us now. We just we're happy to have you here. Uh, we want to start paying you like a real developer. And you know, I literally I'd been making forty or fifty grand a year in San Francisco in my late twenties. So yeah. to me, that was like music to my ears. That was like, you know, oh my god, maybe I can start paying my college loans off. Like, I mean, it was like a big deal. And yeah. I went home. Told my girlfriend, I was like, you know, I think we were probably engaged by that point. She was probably like, thank God. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and we had we had one of those nights in San Francisco where, you know, we went out and I called all my friends and I was like, you know, it was a fun night. We had a great night and went back to the office the next day, turned on my computer 
and I'm watching people file a lot of Lehman Brothers online. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm still getting my bearings here in business and real. So I, I, I hadn't quite made the connection of what this all means. But a couple of weeks later, it was like, oh, my God, this ain't good. Yeah. And, you know, it was a so long story short, it, 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 you know, it, there was no pressure for me to move or, or for me to leave. But I realized quickly, like, this thing's going to last for a while. This is going to be tough. You know, you've heard the, the stories about California entitlements where. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's five, seven. I mean, we had deals that were, they were working on before I got there that after I left still hadn't been approved, you know? So I, I looked at that as a, you know, I was in early thirties at that point, looked at that and said, I'm not going to make it here for 10 more years if I don't get paid. You know, I just, it, it just can't. And having grown up in the Midwest and, and my wife being from Minneapolis, I grew up in Madison mostly. Uh, we kind of said, look, if, if we're going to take it on the chin, Let's go. Let's go take it on the chin in the Midwest for a couple of years, and uh, you know we can we can come back or we can go somewhere else after that. Or you know we'll, again, we were young, we were thirty, we had, we you know didn't have kids, we could kind of be flexible, and we decided to move to Minneapolis uh, with kind of a two year plan of like let's give it a you know let's give it a fair shake, let's give it two years, let's see if we like it there, and then if we don't, we'll you know we'll look at we were looking at Austin and Portland and some other cities also, and we just fell in love with it here it's a really great city. And it was a, you know, it was a tough breakup. I mean, it was leaving, leaving that firm. Cause those guys had become, you know, as you can imagine at that point, they're basically father figures to me. I felt like I was telling my family that I was moving across the country and wow. it was, it was a rough, uh, ending. And, and admittedly we, you know, one of them didn't talk to me for about two years after it happened and it was really brutal. Um, but we're all the good news is we're all good friends now, and uh, I talk to them pretty regularly, and, and all is well, and they're happy for me. But so I made the made the transition to Minneapolis, and ironically, used my acting background to land a job. Nobody was hiring in late 2009, early 2010, as you can imagine. There was one nonprofit uh, tax credit developer that did some artist artist type housing around the country, and I I used my acting background and you know acting plus development. It actually you know. Led to a job, if you can believe that. So <laughs> took on some development work and some asset management work for this firm, flew around the country, helping them kind of stabilize their portfolio uh, during this time. And, you know, I was there for just a shade under two years. And as the market started to improve in 2011, we had kind of made the commitment to stay in Minneapolis. And I had been working very, very hard to kind of build my network here during that time. Um, I knew that I probably wasn't going to be a long-term fit at the artist housing place. So any day I wasn't on an airplane somewhere else around the country, I was having breakfast, lunch, and dinner with people, just really trying to lay that groundwork, figuring when the market comes back, I can't be the new guy, right? I've got to have some connections. I've got to know some people to get in the door somewhere. And again, that's another one of those, right? You look back, connect the dots. It seemed like a smart move in hindsight. At the time, I remember coming home one night and just telling my wife at that point, like, I'm so sick of this networking. Like, I'm flying all over the country. Every second I'm back here in Minneapolis, I'm taking somebody out to lunch, breakfast, dinner. We don't have any money. Like, this is killing me. I don't want to do this anymore. And I remember her just saying, just stick with it. Stick with it a little longer. Networks take a long time to build. Something, something good will come from it. I know it. Just, just, you know, again, trust your gut and keep going. And, you know, as luck would have it, as the market turned and, and started to get better, a lot of opportunities came my way and ended up taking a job with an apartment fund here called Timberland Partners. Great, great company. And spent six years with them from 2011 to 2017, basically 
flying all over the country, buying suburban class B apartment communities in, in secondary and tertiary markets. And you know, I was there for six years. I think we bought something like 8,000 units in the six years I was there. Obviously a great run, really helped me round out my, my kind of tool belt with, you know, in California, I was a project manager, right? And I, you know, I wasn't getting the financing. I wasn't putting the deal together. I wasn't finding the site. I was really just executing on the founder's vision. My time at Timberland was great because it really taught me how to find deals, how to get, you know, how to get to know broker, just, just kind of how to do all the stuff I hadn't done before. So I was really prepared by the time I left, I think, to, to do my own thing. I never had it in the back of my, in my head that like, I have to go do my own thing. I had just gotten to a point at Timberland where it made, it kind of made sense. You know, there wasn't much more, there wasn't any step up for me at that point. I'd kind of done, done what I came to do and decided at that point that I think there was some opportunity to build some stuff in Minneapolis. So took a chance and uh, saved up a little dough and then, then made a break. So now you're the co-founder of Hall Sweeney Properties. When did you kind of one start having the idea and you kind of just touched on this when you were going to go, but two, you had gone from buying existing class B and tertiary markets to a totally different business model, which is urban infill in like a tier one market. So when did you have the idea and why was this the idea instead of maybe continuing to buy, you know, class B stuff? A couple of things. One, one, uh, and again, it, it, this is a hindsight answer. I, I, I've always lived in cities my whole life. You know, even in Madison, we lived kind of in the urban core. I, I, I've never lived out in the suburbs. I've never, you know, been out there. Much, I mean, been out there much is the wrong way to say it. But um, for me, I think my instincts have always been city. It's just always been yeah. like I can go block to block and and kind of tell you what should be where. I have always told people like I feel safer in in downtown Manhattan than I do. You know in some third ring suburb somewhere. And that's, that's not a slight, you know, everybody's different, yeah. right? We're all, we're all wired and built differently. And, and, and Chris, I admittedly, I was starting to get bored with it. I, I was getting sick of traveling to Wichita and, you know, Des Moines. And, and again, no, it's no disrespect to those cities they are great, great places, but I wanted to get back into the city and, you know, do stuff there. And I, you know, a lot of people told me when I left uh, Timberland and I was thinking about it, yeah, you got to, you know, go buy a bunch of class B, start a fund, do this, do that. And admittedly, I thought we were close to the top of the market. <laughs> I, I said, you know, I, I mean, here, how smart am I, right? Jeez. But I was looking at, <laughs> you know, five years later, whoops. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I thought, I mean, I was buying things, Chris, you know, at Timberland, most of the stuff we were buying, and it seems funny now, but, you know, we were buying seven caps in Nashville. Yeah. And, you know, for me, things were in the fives and the high fours at that point. And I thought, there's just no way, right? There's no way this can continue. And and I knew, you know, through seeing other people through a lot of different things, that my first deal had to be a success or my yeah. first fund or, you know, whatever I did first had to work because if it didn't, you know, I'm back to, right, I'm going back to, to the employment line. I just wasn't sure that going out, raising a fund, or, or putting some money together and buying a couple of uh, class B assets at a four and a half or a five cap was going to work. Turns out I was totally wrong and it would have been just fine, but um, <laughs> we'd be selling them all at three caps now and, and it worked out great. But um, and then, you know, again, you, you do the best you can with the information you have at the time, right? Yeah. And I started poking around in Minneapolis and stumbled across the site uh, in a really good location. And a, a friend of mine was the broker. And she called me and said, hey, what, what do you think I should do with this site? And I was looking at it and I said, I'll buy it. 
And over the course of a weekend, I, I put it under contract and started working on it and was, was planning to do like a 45-unit apartment building. And I got about three, four weeks in and realized, A, this is going to take me two or three years. B, I don't have any income then. So what am I going to do? Uh, and C, I don't know if I know what the heck I'm doing. So what, what ended up transpiring was there was another developer who I knew who had built four or five projects kind of along that corridor. And I called him and I said, look, here, here's what I've got. What do you think I should do? And you know, over the course of a couple months, I ended up assigning my contract to him. Um, he took over the development and kind of ran with it. And that put it wasn't a you know wasn't a huge payday by any stretch of the imagination, but gave me a couple bucks to realize, hey, I can probably last six months or a year now. Maybe I can go find another one. And what what the light the light bulb that went off when when that happened was, you know, none of the big guys are looking at these things. You know, and the guys who are buying duplexes and fourplexes and that stuff, like they, you know, this is probably a little out of their wheelhouse. I said, maybe there's an opportunity. Maybe there's some more of these sites around town. And I started looking and I realized these are everywhere. These 50, these 50 60, 70 unit sites, I, I had enough expertise to put them together. So these are all over town. And so I started looking. Um, and my, you know, my goal, Chris, in the beginning was, find a couple consulting deals where I could be a project manager for hire or something to keep a little food on the table. And, you know, maybe in the first 12 months, I'd, I'd find another site. That was the hope. I thought if I could do that, I would be successful and that would be great. I just finishing up a deal then now probably, and, and that would have been fantastic. But as luck would have it, and, and I'm the first one to admit how absolutely lucky I've been, I put together five sites in the first six months. And That's so it, awesome. Just kind of went from there. Yeah. So, so did you have it's it's uh it's Hall Sweeney. You have a partner. How did you find your partner, and what role does he play in your company? Jeff has been a mentor to me for many years prior to me starting the company. Looking back, right, you start building those relationships long before you know how they're going to play out or what's going to happen. He he was a mentor to me, and I, he was one of the guys as I was considering leaving my firm. Uh, or my job, you know, kind of encouraging me saying, I think, you know, I think you've got the chops. I think, I think you could do this. You only live once, go give it a whirl. And when I got that, not the first site that I flipped, but when I found the neck, basically the next site, I called him and because we weren't, you know, we weren't partners yet. None of that was, I was just out on my own trying to figure things out. And I called him and, and said, look, I, I think I'm about to tie up this site. The broke, I know this other broker also, what I don't want to do is get the reputation as a guy who ties up sites and then can't execute. Huge lessons learned from my time at Timberland, right? Is you always execute, you do what you say. If you don't, you don't get a second swing usually. And I was very, very conscious of that. So I called him and I said, look, I haven't tied it up yet. I'm close. What do you think I should do? And it was funny. He was actually in Colorado skiing and he's like, Hey, I'm at the top of the mountain. Let me ski to the bottom. And then let's then call me. I'll call you back in 10 minutes. <laughs> calls me back and he says, well, tell me your vision. You know, Just walk me through what you think here. And I, I spent 15, 20 minutes talking to him about the deal. And he said, that seems like a good opportunity. He goes, why don't we do it together? And I was just like, okay. I mean, no, I don't even know what that means, but okay, that sounds great. <laughs> and you know, it ended up, uh, we partnered on that deal and just had a great working relationship. And, and you know, it's kind of gone from there. You know, obviously, in the early days, he's he's a big part big part of our 
you know, financial piece of our projects and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of that. And I'm, you know, similar to my other roles, I'm out there hustling, finding sites, putting stuff together. And now we work together to, to get them to the finish line. And so to set the tone, because we're going to move into, we're going to pick one deal that you've kind of executed on and we're going to start from idea to end. But can you set the stage of, is it, are you two the only two full-time employees or do you have anybody else in the company? Because there's a lot of people that I get all the time that are in that, you know, it might be like, oh, it's what I started out. It's where you are. It's where a lot of people are. The one-man band, you can get a lot done with as a one-person show, but I, I want to set the stage for how many folks you have full-time with you. Sure. Right now, it is it is just the two of us. Um, we don't have any... Even better. Everything else is it, everything else is third party consultants for hire, so to speak. Um, and one one caveat too, Chris, to, to mention, I think is important, just important to the story is um, as we got going, I, I realized quickly that you know I really enjoyed working with Jeff. I thought we were going to be really good partners. I thought this thing could really go somewhere. But I also realized I can't just do one deal. And, and stay in the game for two, right? I, I got to get a little bit more going in the meantime. Yeah. And, you know, to his credit, Jeff and I, ta- I, I had several conversations with him and, and he being the great person that he is said, look, yeah, you, you know, I'm not ready to jump into five apartment deals at once. I think that might, you know, it might, we might be over our skis a little if we do that. Uh, he's, he's a former, indu- he's an industrial developer too. So I hadn't, you know, hadn't done an apartment deal prior to working with me. Yeah. And said, you know, if you, if you can go either find other deals or, or kind of get your nose into some other partnerships in the short term, like you should go do that. Yeah. And so to Jeff's credit, you know, of the six deals I've completed, half have been with Jeff and the other three have been in, in different partnerships where I've served as one of the general partners uh, working working with other groups. So, you know, to his credit, not a lot of people would, would tell someone to go do that. He did, which has been great. And, and and that's been great for us in a number of ways. A, kept me in the game. But B, you know, I've learned so much by working with some other, you know, with some other people as well. And now, now that we're kind of where we are with our projects uh, going forward, you know, we're really just going to build the Hall Sweeney brand. I'm at a place now where I don't really have to do those other partnerships. I can just, Jeff and I can do, you know, a solid deal or two every year and, and you know, should be just fine. That's great. So just want to put that out there because that's a, you know, people that a lot of people have asked me, how did you get so many deals done in such a short amount of time? Yeah. And, and part, part of it is I was really fortunate to have other partners as well and other people who brought me into projects. That's awesome. And I was hoping you were going to say it was just the two of y'all because I think it gives a lot of inspiration to a lot of people that you can, you can, you can move a mountain with, with a short uh, staff in real estate if you have good third parties and consultants. All right. Well, let's just kind of dig into a deal. I don't know if we want to pick one particular that that you've worked on, but let's just frame it from the very start. How long do these deals take from the day you kind of walk the site for the first time to the day it's uh, it's stabilized? In a perfect world, I guess I'll start at the beginning and then I'll kind of, we can do the math together. Yeah. Um, I, when I when I see a site or I drive by or somebody calls me and says, "Hey, you should go check," you know, check this out, or you know, my dad's uncle's brother's friend has a house that he wants to sell, or you know, whatever it ends up being. When I have that first interaction with a potential seller, one of the first things I tell them is, "My goal is to start construction one year from today." 
you know, that's about at a minimum how much time I'm going to need. And and then, you know, tons of negotiation about contracts and other things with them. But I always say from the day a site becomes like, hey, this is an actual potential, you know, in in a best case scenario, it's usually about a year before we're breaking ground. I've been really fortunate to date. Most of them have have stuck right to just about that year, you know. And here, maybe unlike Texas, uh, we also have to be conscious of the timing of the weather, right? I mean, the, the, in an ideal world, you start the process in March or April, so you're ready the following March or April to break ground. It's totally possible to break ground in December, January, February, and I you know broke ground on one project in November, but you know you're you're sometimes paying extra for ripping the frost or or doing other things with the ground that. You don't have that stuff, you know, if you start start in March or April. And most of the projects I've worked on too, size-wise, the construction is 12 to 14 months. So it's kind of perfect timing. If you can start in March, deliver, you know, 12 to 14 months later, you're in prime leasing season. So that's a, a long answer to the question, but 12, 12 months for, let's call it pre-development. Mm-hmm. 12 to 14 months for construction. So then we're two, you know, we're a little over two years at that point. Mm-hmm. And then depending on the deal, I mean, and again, I, I have been beyond fortunate as far as my lease ups have gone. One of my, my first project leased up, I was hundred percent full 45 days after we opened. Wow. Uh, you know, I've, I've got a deal right now. I just came from this meeting before this 112 unit project. We opened April 1st and we're 81% leased already. Dude, that's um, awesome. It's just, I mean, I, I wish I could tell you why. I mean, I w- other than we got a good market here and obviously something we're doing is resonating with, with tennis to some degree, but I- I'm usually planning a, you know, if I'm going to deliver a project, let's, let's say a hundred units, Chris, if I'm going to deliver a hundred units in April or May of a, of a year, my hope is that by October when the market, you know, in here, I, I don't know if it's similar in Texas, but you know, le- leasing falls off a cliff after October here because yeah. <laughs> nobody's yeah. moving in January and December and November <laughs> and all that stuff. So, you know, on a hundred yeah. unit project, I've got 125 in the ground right now. The goal is to deliver that next May and be and hopefully be stabilized by October. Okay, so you know, if if most things go as planned, you kind of just laid out, you know, a two and a half year kind of i conception to stabilize kind of timeline yeah and that's that's if things yeah and that's that's if things go to plan right Uh, of the six that have completed i would say five have gone to plan one there was a lawsuit and some other things so it did not (laughs) go to plan but uh you know but that's that's i mean and again i i've been in development and, and in this long enough now to as i said earlier like the fact that five of them have gone to plan is just astro i mean there's the you could never plan for that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just luck. It's I just say, absolute I, luck. I say this moderately joking, but a developer that hasn't gotten into a lawsuit is not truly a developer yet. Uh, it's it's kind of uh, table stakes in some form or fashion. All right. I want to get into what you asked for in a contract, but let's just start with the land. Like, what are you looking for to what makes a site great for you and the projects that you're doing? What's the data you're looking at? The the neighborhoods? What things need to boxes need to be checked for you to go? That's a good deal. Besides price, couple things. I mean, our our business plan in general is we're building uh, smaller units in what we call really high highly desirable areas, and the biggest pitch is the neighborhood is the amenity. 
So I'm looking for sites in neighborhoods that I know people want to live in because of, you know, they're already established. I mean, and there's some risk to that in the neighborhood process and other things, but my motto, you know, my, my thinking is I would rather take upfront entitlement risk or risk with neighborhood or, you know, have to fight a little to get something approved, knowing that if I do, I'm, I've got a great site in an established neighborhood um, that I know there's demand for. And, mm-hmm. and I think everybody who's in real estate or frankly, you know, you know what neighborhoods in your city are, are strong, right? Where people want to be. Right. And the new piece here is we've had a lot of transit built over the past 10 years. So I'm also doing my best to, you know, locate those near transit as much as possible. So the, you know, maybe just giving an example, the, the project that we have under construction right now, which is 125 units, it's one block south, or excuse me, one block north of Minnehaha Falls Park, which is basically the nicest park in the city. It's two blocks uh, east of a light rail stop. And the light rail can take you to the airport, downtown, suburbs, wherever you want to go. And it's in a kind of what I'd consider an up-and-coming neighborhood. So it has a lot of boxes checked uh, right off the bat. And we look at things. The other thing we look at is, is what direction is the neighborhood going? Because for the most part, given the way we think about development, design, the other pieces, we're, we're not adverse to selling projects, but, you know, and, and it's probably the cardinal rule that you're not supposed to do. Uh, we do fall in love with them a little bit sometimes because it's, you know, you're working on the same project, you're designing it from scratch, and you spend three years of your life on it. It's hard to say, yeah, let's just sell that right away when we're done, at least for for us. Yeah. You know, and we're we're looking to build a long-term portfolio too. I mean, we're not... We're not traders. We're not. Uh, we're we're looking to build really nice projects in good areas. We'll hold on to them. We've got great management teams, and you know, my goal is to just do as many of those over time as I can. And my attitude is, I'm I'm 43 now. By the time I'm 60, should be fine. So that that's a big thing is established neighborhoods, neighborhoods that we see improving over time. We've gone back and forth. We've done some projects in neighborhoods that have a lot of competition. Mm-hmm. And other projects in neighbor, and there's some advantages to that, right? Because you know there's a built-in market already because right. there's tons of other things. We've also done some projects in in some more up-and-coming neighborhoods where they have a lot of the infrastructure we're looking for, but you know maybe there's only a handful of of, of apartment buildings available or or whatever. And I, I'd say luckily we've had success in both, kind of for different reasons. Is most of the stuff that you're putting under contract unentitled? for multifamily or does it at least allow you maybe multifamily and you're just getting other types of entitlements or is everything you're doing kind of a total up zone? Yeah, it, it's been, you know, Chris, honestly, it's been a little bit of everything. Some of the sites we've bought have already been, you know, zoned for multifamily. I mean, you, we always have to go through the entitlement, pro- even if it's zoned or something, we always have to go through the process to get the formal approvals and all that. Obviously, an easier situation when it's already zoned for it. Again, the, the project that we just started uh, you know, a month and a half ago was going to be zoned appropriately, but the city was in the middle of changing a comp plan. So mm-hmm. we actually did have to get a rezoning. So during the pandemic, I had to go door to door to 21 houses to try to convince 13 of them to sign a petition allowing me to apply for a rezone. <laughs> um, <laughs> to this day, I have no idea how we pulled that off. Um, I, I mean, I just can't. But um, one one of the things that has been working in our favor is, and, and you know, first to admit this is the city of Minneapolis is is very pro density, very pro development right now. 
we've been a real up and coming city the past five or 10 years. And that, that has a lot of great things, brings its challenges too, right? So um, the city has been pretty proactive about upzoning certain areas, you know, and, and, and I think in a good way, you know, preserving the single family neighborhoods where it's appropriate, but then allowing developers on commercial corridors and, and nodes to build higher, right? To, to, right? So to have kind of all of those uses. So, you know, we've been, we've certainly been the beneficiary of that as well. How, uh, how do you find them? Are you working brokers? Are you cold calling? Are you driving streets? How do you find your sites? It's, that's a good question. It's, it, it's kind of a mix. I mean, when I started, it was driving, knocking on doors, sending letters, calling broke. I mean, basically, as you can imagine, telling everybody and every, you know, here's what I'm looking for. Here's what I do. Let me know if you ever hear anything. And, you know, you chase a lot of bad leads that way, but you, you don't have a choice, right? That, that's how you get started. One of the, the, I think the big takeaways from my time at Timberland was, especially as the market got more and more competitive, was deal, really good deals are hard to come by. And if you find one, you act quickly. Yeah. You know, you don't mess around. So I, I'll tell you, there's been plenty of times when a good site has fallen in my lap on a Friday afternoon or a Friday night or a Saturday morning. Right away till Monday. More than likely would have been fine if I waited till Monday. <laughs> But I have that drilled in my head that when they come around, you don't you don't wait. Yeah. So like that very first site I, I flipped um, came to me on a Friday afternoon, and I had it. I had an LOI by Monday morning, and you know I worked all weekend. We just had a baby. I told my wife I'm sorry, but I, you know we got to eat. I got to feed this kid, so we're gonna make this happen. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but I worked I worked all weekend to, to make sure that it was ready, and that that was a big takeaway from from my time at Timberland. Was like, look. You don't when there's a good one on the line, you don't mess around, you get it done right away. Yep. So that that's been, you know, I've been the beneficiary of that. The first deal that I did, Colo Apartments, um, I was literally getting my haircut or I was waiting in line to get my haircut, and which I obviously haven't done you, in a long you time. You get haircuts? Yeah, I know. It, it I used I'm to kidding. have dude, I used to have a little flow hawk and yeah, it's all it's a whole it's a whole new it's a whole new vibe these days. Um yeah. I call it my Jesus of Nazareth look. Um, I love it. But you know, I was get I was waiting in line to get my hair cut and I was literally like scrolling through Facebook or something on my phone. This was like mid-2017. And a buddy of mine who's a who's a retail broker and an office broker had kind of a mismatched listing. And he he threw it up on Facebook and said, Hey, I've got this old, you know, I've got this one-story senior center. I don't even know where, you know, where where do, where do I start? I texted him right away and I said, Jeremy, that's exactly what I'm looking for. How soon can I meet you at the site? And he's like, I'm there right now. And I, you know, put the phone, I said, I'll be there in 10 minutes. Put the phone down, skip the haircut, ran right over there. So I was the first one there. And again, you know, I could have probably negotiated, you know, you you never know, right? But again, there's a hot one on the line, you go go get it done. So I convinced him, even though it was my first one, I convinced him I'd get it done. I called, you know, called Jeff 20 minutes after leaving Jeremy, and that's how it all came together. I love it. All right. So, Let's just let's run with that site for a little bit. So you find the site. It's you, we've kind of gone through what you look for in a market. You show up to the site, you like it. Then I'm assuming you go back to an Excel model or some type of underwriting. What does that kind of preliminary underwriting look like? And what kind of are your big variables that you're messing with? Sure. And if it's okay, I'm going to tell you my process now. I will tell you that that's a less, you know, I made every mistake in the book on that one. Um, let's do it. I did a lot. Of- I did a lot of things out of order and uh, whatever, <laughs> but what, what I would do, you know, what I do today is 
I have, so if I have that meeting with a seller, right, or the broker, whoever's there, my next call, I mean, I, I know now I know enough about the zoning in the city that I, I can actually get pretty close on my own. If I know how big the site is, what the potential zoning is, how many stories I can build, I can come pretty close on how many units I can build. So I can, I can pretty much quickly figure that out now. But as soon as I, you know, if it if it's anything more than like a 30 second sniff test, my first call is to my architect. And I say, look, you know, confidentially, here's the site I'm looking at. How quick can we figure out how many units we can build? Because I need to know that based so for what I can what I can pay. And you know, nor, I mean, those guys are awesome. You know, and this is for many you know many architects. They can just quickly look at a site. You know, my guy always tells me, you know, I need an hour. Give me an hour, and I can get back to you with something pretty good. Um, so yeah. I'll quickly do that. You know, get quickly understand. Okay, you know, we can build a six story project. You know, somewhere in the hundred and twenty to hundred and thirty unit range. Um, so, you know, and again, it's, it's a little bit soft, but that, yeah. that's kind of the estimate. And then knowing the rents in the area, I can, I can quickly figure that out. Here's what the rents are. Here's how many units we can build. Here's about what it's going to look like. And then another quick call to one of my builder friends and Hey, here's what I'm looking at. You know, and again, I have enough data from past projects now that a lot of this I can sometimes just do, but yeah. that would be the process would be to call, you know, call a builder and get get a quick spot check on price. Again, you know, most of the most of the good builders in any market can tell you, look, you're building a six story, you know, if you're building a five over two or a six over one or this or that, right? You're going to be at either this a square foot roughly or what I like to do because my projects kind of vary in size sometimes is I, I like to take it at a hard cost per unit. Can you tell me, you know, is this going to cost me 150 a door to build, 130 or 180? And any good builder, you know, again, can take 20 minutes and tell you that usually. So I've spent a grand total of an hour on it at this point, maybe two. And I've got an architect's opinion and a builder's opinion. And then I can quickly dive into my underwriting. And again, at this stage, I'm not, you know, I'm not doing 10 pages of waterfalls and tabs and everything. I mean, it's just a quick, like, here's the rent, here's the cost. Does this seem to look like it makes sense? And not to ask the easiest question in the book, but how do you pull rent? Do you just, are you looking at comps within a mile, especially in some of these areas where you might be building kind of a pioneer project? Like, how do you think about what's, what rent's going to be? It's comps within whatever distance I've got, basically. If, if there's nothing within two miles, then I got to give it my best guess based on what's two miles away. Uh, obviously in the, the areas where there's a bunch of other buildings, you know, in certain submarkets, it, it's pretty quick these days with apartments.com and other things to go on and, you know, get a, get a quick sense of where, where things are that day. All right. Uh, so preliminary underwriting looks good. Site visit looks good. Architects and builders have kind of given you some rough numbers. You've checked all your boxes, green lights, then what happens? Then it's LOI. And I always, everybody does it a little differently. I always want to, I always like to go LOI first because my attitude is, is again, you know, everybody's time is valuable and I want to make sure we've got a reasonable seller with a reasonable agreement before we die, you know, before we spend three weeks negotiating a purchase agreement. Yep. So I'll, I'll, you know, hammer out an LOI, submit it, hopefully get, get everybody on board, assuming we can keep that where we want to, or, or, you know, it's within the range we're willing to do. Um, we'll move to a purchase agreement after that. And I always tell people, and it's, you know, everybody, again, everybody does it a little differently. I don't think it's wise to spend any money on a site until you have a purchase agreement. 
I don't, I don't think there's any, I mean, you have to spend money on your attorney, obviously on the purchase agreement, but up to that point, you should be able to do all that for free, even if you're new and you've never done it before. Any, a lot of architects, I mean, there's a, you, you can pretty much figure out who's designing what buildings in town. And if you call an architecture firm that's, you know, doing 10 active deals and you say, Hey, I'm looking at a site, they'll spec an hour for you for sure. So up to purchase agreement, I don't think you should have spent a dollar or at least very, very minimal amounts of money. Get it under contract. Once you do that, uh, for us, the next step right away is third-party reports. We want to know what we've got, again, before we get too deep on anything. Assuming we have time in the contract, and, and it's not always this way. I mean, sometimes we have to move, we have to you know, run parallel tracks with design and third-party reports. In a perfect world, we do the third-party reports first. We do the survey. We do the phase one environmental. We do the geotechnical. And if needed, we do a phase two environmental. That basically lays out everything we need to know about the soil, the site, the contaminants, any, any issues you know, that we would encounter. We know that. We try to find that out right away. because And lesson learned, I will tell you, you do that second, you spend $50,000 on design only to find out, oh, whoops, I can't build four stories here. I can't do... And you can imagine why I know that. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> Uh, as I said, I've, I've made a lot of the mistakes, and luckily I've, I've, I've you know, made it through. But uh, so that that would be the next. That's kind of that next step, right? Is getting your arms around what's there from an environmental and elite. You know, tight. Also, I would throw a survey in there mm-hmm. and title get updated title reports. I have my attorney review the survey and the title just to make sure there's no nothing funny going on before I start diving in. Let's take a quick break to highlight this episode's sponsor, Juniper Square. If you aren't familiar with Juniper Square, it's an easy to use all-in-one investment management software designed specifically for real estate owners. We have been using it at Fort Capital for several years now, and it has completely revamped the experience we're able to provide our investors through reporting, management, and efficiency. Here's a bit more on how Fort Capital utilizes the platform. With Juniper, we send out one email, all of our investors receive it as a data room. Then on our CRM side, we can see who's logged into the data room, who hasn't, how many times they've logged in. We're very in touch with who's looking at the deal when, and we're also given software that's allowing us to watermark our documents so those private documents can't be shared all over the internet, which is really important. Again, when you're launching these real estate deals, you know confidentiality is important, and Juniper gives us a huge opportunity to keep our things uh, confidential, while also creating a really elegant experience for investors to look at the deal and preview the deal. You can check out episode 138, Real Estate Syndication 101, to learn more about the investor experience we created with Juniper Square or visit cjunipersquare.com. That's S-E-E, junipersquare.com for more information. And now back to the show. Before we go further than that, let's take one step back again to the contracts because I've I've been a developer. I'm not anymore, but I've also sold a lot of unentitled sites that I went under contract with a developer. What terms matter? I know there's lots of extensions. I know there's zoning cases. What terms matter to you? And what does the site need to be by the time you're ready to close, you know, a year later? Frankly, a lot of them matter, but... <laughs> The biggest thing for me is time, yeah. if I can get it. And, and what I, because what I try to get across to any seller is look, 
you know, in the next 12 months, I'm going to spend quarter million dollars of my own money, 150, 200, 250. I mean, something, you know, there's going to be, we're putting real money out after this thing. And for us to do that, you know, and then have to close before we know what we've got, it's, it's maybe not worth it to us. Yeah. You know, and that, that varies in every market. And, and I remember there was a Twitter conversation about that's impossible in my market and et cetera, et cetera. And I get that. I mean, I, I understand that there are places where, you know, land is so scarce and people are chasing it so hard that sellers are going to say, I don't care what you have to do once you buy it from me. That's, that's your problem. And again, we're, we're still fortunate here that at least, at least in my experience, I've still been able to negotiate, you know, about a year to close typically. Yeah. Um, and, and in those contracts, what, what I'm looking for is, is, and I'll set benchmarks, you know, and there's been times where, I, you know, cause I'll say, that I think the thing that sellers hate is if you take a, if you set up a contract, say, I'm going to close in a year and then they don't hear from you for nine months. Right. Right. I mean, that, that makes them crazy. So what I try to do is set up benchmarks and say, look, you know, within three months, I'll have the survey and the title done and the phase one, and I'll get, I'll shoot you a note and let you know that that's complete. And yeah. then, you know, three months after that, I'll have the phase two and the geotech, the schematic design, and we may, we'll already be talking to the city. Three to four months after that, if everything is on track, I'll have city approvals. And then, you know, two or three months after, I need, give or take, three months after city approvals, maybe four, depending on the time of year, uh, get construction documents finished, get our demo permit ready, raise the equity, get the debt in place and start construction. So in a perfect world, and you know, we were able to do this on our recent project. We put it under contract early last year. We closed March 31st and we started construction April 1st. Um, I, I remember with, seeing that one on Twitter. Yeah, yeah it was, I mean, again, it, it doesn't always work that way, but because the land, you know, as a developer who's not, land, you know, as a small shop, right? And this is the difference between me and a, a bigger group. We don't really have the ability to land bank for extended periods of time. Well, I should I shouldn't say that. We do, but it's a very poor use of our capital, right? right. To be land banking a two million dollar site for, oh, we didn't get approvals. Now what are we going to do, right? I mean that that's that's a game we try to avoid. I mean sometimes it happens, yeah. and you know have to close on a site prior to when we would want to. Yeah. But um, as much as we can, we try we try to wait till we're we're literally ready to start construction. Yep. I would say if not construction, city approvals are are pretty key. I have I'm, you know, it, it would be very difficult for me to want to close on a site until I know I have city approvals. No, I hear you, and and I think what you were saying about folks that are willing to close on land before that, it's it really isn't that way in Texas either, unless you're a high rise developer in like Miami or New York or San Francisco or something traditionally nobody's really being forced to just close to close so that that's pretty normal in texas what uh what stages of the contract do you put up hard money do you put up any hard money before city approvals we'll typically do i mean we'll do soft obviously soft earnest money right away mm -hmm. um right you know within three to five days or whatever, whatever the seller wants again i try to keep that relatively low again using the argument that like <laughs> i'm putting a lot of money i can never get back uh, yeah. potentially against against this thing starting next week. So, you know, if I have to give you $50,000 of earnest money, it just accelerates my risk pretty tremendously. And I'm not as excited about this deal. You know, again, we, we're trying to avoid it as much as possible. You know, we, we had a situation on our last project where with, you know, with COVID and, and some of the interruptions, 
uh, we did need some extensions and, and one of the, the three parcels that we were trying to buy just absolutely didn't want to. Just said, no, you got to close. And we, we just said, well, we're not going to do it. And we ended up negotiating a, a hard money deposit every month to get us an additional three or four months to get to the end. I mean, it was pretty inconsequential to us, the amount that we had to put down. And I and forgive me, I don't remember for sure. If I, I'm almost sure we credited it towards closing if we closed. But if we didn't, he got to keep it. Got it. One more question kind of on uh, the contract period, but like what city approvals as it relates to your market are you typically getting on these deals? And I'm pretty sure it's transferable to most markets, but what are you usually getting from the city? So we're, we're getting basically at a minimum, the planning, the mini, the planning commission has to give us site plan approval, mm-hmm. um, which if we go in with needing no variances, needing, you know, like we're building a project by right, um, at a minimum, we have to get a site plan approval by the planning commission. What that involves is what's called a land use submittal, where we put, you know, there's a whole package we put together that gets submitted to the city that gets heard at the planning commission. Um, and then it's either approved, denied or extended. If it gets denied, we can appeal it. And if, or, or if a neighbor appeals it, it can also be appealed. Uh, it would be appealed to then the city council. And then they have the ability to approve or deny basically what are called your land use and your land use approvals. Um, there's also yep. plan development review, which kind of runs concurrently with that. That's where all the city departments, fire, you know, traffic, everybody is evaluating your plan also and just making sure it checks kind of all the boxes in their departments. That's yeah. usually a little bit more, I would say that's less controversial, right? That's more of a like, does this check the codes and the boxes? Yes. Okay, great. Um, it's usually yeah. the land use approvals that can be tougher. That's what, you know, if you do have neighbor resistance or, or any sort of resistance, it's always at the land use approval stage. Then we're applying for the actual, you know, building permit, demo permit, footings and foundation permit. Um, but once we have the land use approvals, we can apply for that stuff. Okay. And I said it was the last question, but I think this is kind of the bigger thing before we actually break ground. So you're under contract. You have done all your preliminary third-party surveys. We, we talked about, you know, now it's time for design. And I want to ask you about design. But at what point are you hiring the architect? Who's participating with the architect? Do you have your GC participate with the architect so that an architect, you know, GC says this is what it's going to cost? but they're actually working in tandem with the architect. What, what's going on to get the thing uh, on budget to where it's being designed how you want it and there's a contractor that it, you know, is making you feel good that it's going to be delivered on time and on budget? Again, everybody does it a little bit differently, yeah. but what we have found success with is part of the you know, challenge obviously in, in having a small firm is there's only so much time available. There's only, you know, so many things going on that we're, we're trying not to reinvent the wheel every time with our process. So right. we have kind of fallen into, we've got a great architectural relationship now and, and we're using the same firm most of the time. Um, sometimes, you know, sometimes there's a project that's outside their expertise or they're just too busy. You know, there's a few things that come up. Same with Builder. We're typically using the same builder every time now. And so what we're doing is as we're starting the design with the architect, I'm getting at various points as we progress, kind of a spot check on the price from the contractor. 
saying here, you know, here, here's the, you gave me this initial bid or this initial, you know, you gave me this initial spitball number. Here's kind of our updated set of plans. They can go through pretty quickly and, and give me, Hey, yep, you're still on track or, you know, ugh, this, this is accelerated or gone down or changed. Um, and, and we do that every couple months throughout the design process just to keep ourselves on kind of on the right path. Right. Um, and if we are, if we are going to use that particular builder for a project, we will typically bring them in kind of after, usually after city approval. I mean, we'll get close to city approvals and we'll get the city approvals. And then as we create the construction documents and make all the final changes prior to building, we'll typically bring that builder in at that point. Um, yeah. So they're basically, yeah, seat at the table with us. You know, what, what you get approved by the city is, it, it's a schematic design. It obviously, it has civil information. It has the civil engineering and the architecture in, in Minneapolis. What it doesn't have is the mechanical, electrical, plumbing, you know, all those other pieces of how a building comes together. Those are not a large part of the city approvals. So we start doing that immediately after. And that's when we usually bring our contractor in so they can assist us in all in in helping us through that piece of it. Got it. Are there any big points in a contract uh, in a contract with a GC that matter to you? Because, you know, we were joking earlier about the lawsuits, but I think one of the biggest places that uh, developers go wrong when they don't own their own GC is is through the building. That's where things can get really kind of crazy. How do you keep everybody in line accountable and, and rowing in the right direction? So as we were getting started, we did, um, you know, we did kind of the traditional get the plans to to design development or construction documents, and then formally bid those out to three to five groups. I mean, we did, yeah. we went through that process initially. I don't, I don't remember how many, let's say two or three times. Uh, what we found was one group was consider was consistently in the top two, built our first two projects, did an absolute bang up job. We're honest. We're you know we're transparent. The whole we we just had a really good experience, and they were easy to work with, and so they they've kind of become our go to to some degree. But the way and, and they have kind of an interesting method. And I admittedly again I don't know if others have done this or not. But in in our contracts or in our in our budgets with them, we have a shared contingency. Mm-hmm. They they carry a construction contingency, um, and then there's a sharing of that between us and them. So I am just making up numbers. Let's say that's four hundred thousand dollars on a project, right? Right. Um, we, you know, we provide the specs. We we provide all the data to them. They bid out the project. Um, they get it all teed up. We get our, you know, our our, our maximum price. Everything's set. I have yet to do a project either on my own or when I was at, at various firms that there hasn't been a little bit of discrepancy on that, right? Like, oh, we thought you guys said this kind of countertop, and we actually bid this one, or. Yeah. You know, again, it's not, I mean, it's not 50 things, but there's always a couple of things that, oh, shoot, just through the process got, you know, slipped through the cracks somehow. What I have found in in the shared contingency model is it eliminates a lot of the fighting or a lot of the like, well, you screwed this up. No, you screwed this up. Now we're going to sit and fight about it for three weeks as opposed to figuring out a solution. So basically, where we've landed with these guys is like, if you miss something in the spec, it comes out of that contingency. If I make a change, you know, or if I ask, you know, basically anything they miss comes out of there. But if they're able to help us value engineer certain things or make or make suggestions to our project, you know, that's money that can get added to that contingency. So it's a contingency that we're both trying to keep 
as high as possible because then we can split it at the end. And I've, I, I haven't done that on certain projects. And then it really does become, I mean, it really is a you said, I said kind of headbutting battle for 12 to 16 months, which uh, works really well for some people. It's not my style. It's just, yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not confrontational. I admittedly, I don't like to fight. I don't like to get into arguments with people. I don't like to, you know, I, I don't like to light people up, so to speak. <laughs> uh, you know, and it's, it's for me, again, a big piece of this is just the enjoyment of the process. Yeah. And, you know, I don't want to spend, I don't want to spend 12 to 16 months arguing every week with somebody about yeah. something. It's just not, it's not how I'm wired and what I like to do. So we, we've set this up in a nice way that, um, you know, again, it's, it's not that we don't have disagreements. It's not that stuff that, you know, I have to push back. They have to push back on me. I mean, of course, but it seems like it's become a reasonable, it's a much more enjoyable way to go through the process. Yep. One more nuanced question on the contractor and some listeners might think this is too detailed, but developers get this. Who is accountable for the MEP and structural engineers, your architect, your contractor, or you? It depends a little on the project. We typically have our builder doing that. Actually, I should say architect will typically do mechanical sometimes, um, but it's, it's a mix between the, the architect and the builder, depending on the project. I, I'm, typically, I'm typically trying to stay out of that as much as I can. All right, design. I, I truly and I and I, I I very much mean this. I'm not brown nosing because we're doing this awesome episode. Your, your your thoughtfulness behind design precedes you. It's very um, obvious that it, it matters a lot to you. So, a couple questions on where do you get inspiration from, and how do you think about design, and and who are you hiring? Is is all of these your ideas that you're feeding to the architect? Do you just have an amazing architect? Why are you so good at design? That's a good question. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, that's that's flattering. Thank you. I, I appreciate you saying that. Um, I mean, there's a there's a there's a bunch of different reasons. I mean, of course, first and foremost, great architects. Yeah. I mean, absolutely, absolutely great architects. And I take a lot of inspiration from the cities I've lived in. Uh, my wife likes to tell the story that when we lived in San Francisco, I would like we'd have friends come to town. And they, you know, hey, let's go to this bar. Let's do this. And I'd always say, hey, let's drive around and look at the new buildings. And they're always like, what's wrong? Like, it's so it's, <laughs> it's always been something that's just kind of been a piece of me in a way. I mean, it's just always like when I was a little kid, I used to like to walk around my neighborhood and look at all the houses. And I can't explain it. I don't know where it came from. Uh, my mom had, some, you know, an artistic background. And so maybe, maybe there's a little bit of a DNA there <laughs> that, yeah. uh, you know, got transferred to me, but it, it is something that's always mattered to me and uh, it's always felt important. I admittedly, Chris, didn't think anyone would care. I mean, I, I, I didn't set out to, to do these amazing designs that like people would respond. You know, it was more so when I, when I started to, to do projects that I thought, hey, I have a certain aesthetic. I'm going to try to make this first one look that way. Well, let's see what happens. And you know, it, I mean, I didn't expect the reception that it got yep. and, and it happened on the second one. It happened on the third one. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, huh, maybe I am doing this a little bit differently. You know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, like, I think I'm, I can do it better. It was mainly just, I want to do it my way. And I, I honestly didn't think anybody would care. Would you say that you spend more on your projects because they're so design forward or 
you're you're coming in on budget with everybody else. You're just putting in the the uh, the time to really thoughtfully think through it, rather than kind of crank these out like they're just a widget. Yes, I mean we. I don't. Admittedly, I don't think that we spend any more. I mean, we're using off. We're using the same materials. We're yeah. using the same off-shelf materials as everybody else. Yep. I, I will say, having partnered with other people and, and gone through other, you know, and, and worked in other groups and gone through other processes, I do think it matters to us more. And I, I don't say that as I'm, that's not a good or a bad thing. I, I do think, you know, development, I mean, development for me has become more of a calling or a passion, I think, and less about how much money I'm going to make over time. And, and, and not that that's good, bad, or ugly. I, I think for some, it's, it's, Let's build the most efficient, you know, building we can and get it filled up right away. And I think it'll look decent and let's call it a day. You know, I think that's how a lot of people think about it. I don't think that's wrong. I don't think yep. there's anything wrong with that. Um, I think we spend a little more time and a little more effort and, you know, dare I say, have slightly more talent in that department. I don't know. I mean, I don't mean yeah. to sound whatever. You do. Um, I'll, but I'll I, be the one to say it. It just, it, it honestly, it just matters more to me. There's something like I, I, if the only thing that ever comes from this for me is in 30 years, you know, my kids can drive around this town or, or people who know me and say, oh, there's one of Sean's, you know, that's literally good enough for me. Yeah. That's the cool. That's such a cool part about real estate. It's, it's there. You can drive by it. It's going to be there in a long, long time. And that could be good or bad. Um, yeah, in your case. Yeah. And, you know, and the thing is too, Chris, that, you know, for, for those that, uh, somebody called me out on Twitter the other day saying, obviously you don't care about money, um, <laughs> which I got a kick out of, but, um, you know, look, my, my attitude is also, I mean, I think I said earlier, you, you've heard how my projects have performed, right? right? So I, it, trust me, it's not, it's not me not trying to make money. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it, 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 that, that piece of it, my attitude with that piece of it is like, if I can build really good projects and really good locations that stand the test of time, the money's going to take care of itself. For sure. What would Twitter be without those people? We, we just need them. Do you think you're getting paid premiums and rent because you're designed forward and you're really thoughtful about these buildings? Yeah. Yes. And no. Yeah. I think in certain locations, yes. Yeah. Uh, I think in certain locations, no. I think it, it depends. Part, part of what, you know, as I said earlier, part of what we're doing is, you know, building smaller units in really nice areas, in really nice buildings, you know, hopefully near transit or other, other neighborhood amenities. And, you know, we're, we're trying to be that first apartment for somebody or that second apartment for somebody in an area they want to live in that, you know, maybe that 750 square foot one bedroom is just a little out of their price range. Um, but they can come live in our 525 square foot, well-designed one for a couple hundred bucks less a month. That's been working really well, um, for our, our business plan. Admittedly, if Minneapolis or if Minnesota ever changes its egregious, uh, builder liability laws, uh, which got put in place, I think in 2008, as a response to a lot of condo, a lot of, let's call them sketchy condo conversions that took place at the end of last cycle. You know, I, I do think potentially someday if I built condos, I might see a bigger difference. Like that, that piece may come into play more. Or if I'm I'm playing at the higher end of the the spectrum, potentially that's where the design would would set us apart even more. Couple questions on property management. So you've done 45 unit. You're doing 120 unit. 
Um, on a 45 unit, I would assume you don't have anybody full-time on property. Do you on the 120 unit deal? Yes. So you're correct. We don't, um, typically at, at the smaller projects, 40, 50, 60 units, we'll have a part-time person, uh, and there won't be somebody there full-time on site. A lot of times in that situation, we're hoping to tie them in with another, maybe larger property nearby or or property of the same size ish nearby where, you know, we, we have, for example, we have a 41 unit project and six blocks away, we have a 91 unit project and we have one yeah. manager that covers both of those. So, and they, their office is at the 91 unit, but they go by, you know, but they're six blocks away from the 41 and they go there whenever they need to. The, the 125 unit will have a full-time onsite person. And on leasing, if I was to go to the 41 unit and wanted to lease, I would just call the number and somebody at the 91 unit would pick it up. And that's how I would, you know, set up my appointment to go lease. Yep. And a lot of it, I mean, especially in this new construction world, you know, so much of it has moved online, right? In the past couple of years where you literally go to the website, pick what unit you want, put in all your information. And sometimes it can happen without even the phone call anymore. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, but that to your to your question, that's that's basically the gist of it. Yeah, is you'd you'd figure out the contact and then that person would come come track you down. All right. We talked about exterior design. I just a couple more questions on interior design. Is your architect do they do your interior kind of mock-ups and elevations as well? Yep. yep. Yes, they do. Okay. Yep. The architect I use has a has a really good uh interior design kind of team in their office. Yeah. So there so that that team is usually taking the lead on the interior finishes, colors, you know, all that stuff. Um I have in the past when I've used another firm, uh we have actually brought in like a third party interior design firm to kind of be involved in that process as well. Yeah. And who and who does all your common like amenity furniture and stuff? Is that a interior designer or do you do that? It, yeah, it, it's either the interior team um, at the architecture firm that we use mostly, or it's a, it's a, it's that same third party group um, on the other projects. Can you speak at all to how you process draw requests? Do you hire external accounting, or how do draw requests get approved? We don't. Um, <laughs> Jeff does most of the, <laughs> Jeff <Yeah>. does those. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we, you know, we, we gather the invoice. We're, we're pretty good. I mean, one of the things that being, being a two man firm has forced us to be is extremely organized and extremely, you know, our Dropbox is, is pretty on point. I mean, we yeah. know where everything is at all times. We have a process where, you know, if somebody, if I get an email, if I get an invoice sent to me on something automatically, I know exactly what folder in the Dropbox it goes. And then when Jeff goes to do the draws, he's pulling everything out of that folder. We always co-review them, obviously, before they get get submitted, because um, yeah. obviously everyone filed or something. But um, yeah, for the most part, he's handling that, and I'm just reviewing them along with them before they before they go in. Uh, okay. We will have, you know, third party accountants and other folks doing tax returns, investor returns, all that kind of stuff as well. Okay, because there is a limit on how much we can do. <laughs> yeah, the only thing we didn't talk about was financing how do you finance the projects and then what are you looking to do once you're stabilized since you're working on long-term holds yep so for the most part um you know and, and i think most developers that you know to your point earlier that aren't maybe building skyscrapers in new york are financing their developments with local banks 
Yeah. Um, that, that's been the primary source of our debt financing um, on all the projects we've done. So it's, it's, to be honest, it's pretty uncomplicated. I mean, yeah. we're, we're getting a construction loan for, you know, usually 75, it used to be 80% of the total cost. Now it's usually more like 75. Um, we've been able to, you know, debt. I mean, that's another thing that obviously given my, you know, four years out on my own, I, I've been very fortunate that there's been very liquid and active debt and equity markets. That's certainly made our lives very, you know, a lot easier. Um, I've lived through times when those markets are not active and a lot of good deals, but impossible to get any money together to put them to do them. So we're yeah, we're going out to local banks for the most part, um, taking a let's say a seventy five percent construction loan. Uh, we're then you know raising the equity, the, the other twenty to twenty five percent of the equity. We're, we're typically rolling our developer fee in as equity as well, and then as as well putting in additional equity on top of that. It's it's typically our goal. It, it doesn't work out on every project, given, you know, mm-hmm. given a million different reasons, but it's typically our goal for Jeff and I to be the two largest individual investors in any project we do. Wow. Um, because our, our kind of ethos around that is like, we're, we're not out there trying to just leverage your money. We've spent two or three or four years of our time, effort, you know, blood, sweat, and tears on this. We're making a, a large bet. We're just asking, you know, we're looking for people who want to come along with us on that bet, basically. Yep. Um, you know, and not and, and and it's nice to be able on that schedule A to be the top two names. <laughs> it's yeah. uh, it, you know, it, it helps. It, and again, that's not it's not every project. Um, you know, the forty-one unit project, for example, Jeff and I did on our own. We didn't bring in any outside investors. You know, that's our capital step. Typically, twenty twenty-five percent equity, seventy-five eighty percent debt. We're typically doing floating rate debt uh, with these banks. I mean, given the market today, you know, that's we have we have a couple of projects that we haven't refinanced yet, and part of the reason is we put the loans in place pre-COVID, and there's no floor on the floating rate debt. We've got some low two low two construction loans right now that we built at you know six to sevens, so uh, we're kind of riding those out for now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but right. Uh, but typically, yeah, typically the, the kind of the big the business plan is, you know, get the deal financed, get it built, uh, get it stabilized. And then if we do, if we are in a situation where we have outside investors, we're usually, again, assuming there's a floor on the interest rate, um, which there has been, you know, COVID and, and since, it is to re- usually it's to refinance. And the, and the thought is on the refinance, you know, if if the stars have aligned, even to some degree, you've usually created some significant value by by building a building. Mm-hmm. Um, at least that's the the hope. Um, so you know, typically we're able to return twenty, thirty percent of their initial investment sometimes when we refinance. And then, you know, the plan then is to to usually hold. You know, usually we'll try to put permanent debt on, maybe a Fannie or Freddie, or you know, life insurance has been attractive lately. Seven-year debt, ten-year debt, kind of depending on the deal and who who the investors are, um, with the thought that you know we'll we'll give you some of your money back at refinance, and we'll hopefully give you a solid uh, cash flow up up for those seven or ten years. And then, admittedly, we haven't gotten to that seven or ten years yet on any project. So, yeah, you know, we may sell, we may re up again for another. I mean, we'll, we'll kind of you know cross that bridge when it comes, but. The stuff Jeff and I are doing together, that, that's that been the primary way we've done it. Actually, similar on, on a couple of the other ones I've done with some other folks. Um, we do have one project that we built um, that I got into with, with another group early on. 
where the business plan all along was just to sell it, build it and sell it. And so that that's we're going through that process right now, finalizing some BOVs from brokers and and everything. And uh, that'll probably come out on the market this summer. All right. Uh, just more some some high level questions. Some folks sent some stuff in on Twitter, and then we'll we'll bring it home. Um, what is the most popular unit size right now? A smaller one bedrooms or two bedrooms? What what's what's interesting right now? We're still struggling with 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 kind of the middle of the range. I, I'd say the most popular right now is either the smallest because it's the the least expensive, mm-hmm. or we are also finding some success with some of the larger two bedrooms where, you know, there's been, I would call it kind of flat rent growth or, or somewhat flat rent growth the last year or so in Minneapolis. Um, people are now kind of going back to doubling up into larger two bedrooms. So we've had either kind of small studio or larger two bedrooms. It's kind of that middle where, you know, it's 700 square feet, 800 square feet, 900 square feet, where, you know, that price has gotten to 15, 17, 1800 where somebody says, well, I'd rather pay 2400 and live with a roommate, or I'd rather pay 1200 and live alone in a small studio. I think that's partially been COVID-driven to some degree also. So it'll be interesting to see what happens here over the next couple of years. Yeah. Um, I think how, how that unit demand kind of shakes out. What amenities like matter right now? Are you implementing technology or software, or, you know, keyless fobs, or what, what amenities matter for your project? You know, it, it's it's funny because these projects, as we talked earlier, you know, take two, three years to come to fruition. And as you know, technology is changing, what, 10x in that amount of time. You know, I feel like we're, we're trying to stay as up to date as we can. And I always still feel like we're a little late uh, with some of the stuff, just given how fast it moves. I mean, we've been we've been doing keyless fobs um, on, you know, doors. We've been doing pretty high tech security cameras for a couple of years now. We haven't done you know, I'm starting to hear in our market of like management-free buildings where everything's on an app. Uh, we haven't gotten to that, certainly to that degree yet. But we're, we're trying to stay as kind of as up-to-date on that stuff as we can. As far as, you know, we have, we sign um, bulk uh, internet deals typically with local providers. And basically the, the thought there is they, they will sell me a bulk deal at a price that I can then offer it to you at a, at, as a tenant for substantially less than you would pay by calling them directly. And you get two or three times the speed on your internet. And then I can bill you back. It's 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 kind of a win-win-win all around for everybody. So we've been doing that. And, you know, as far as other amenities, it it depends on the size of the project. I mean, our 41-unit project, for example, we just have a small rooftop, a small fourth floor outdoor kind of deck for folks, as well as an indoor-outdoor kind of first floor community room really tried to activate the street there and the pedestrian experience. Then on our, you know, our 125 unit that's under construction, we've got, you know, we'll have a co-working space, an art gallery. We have traditional retail. We're hoping to get a coffee shop or somebody else in there. You know, we've got a pet wash. We've got a six floor community room with a grill. And we have a really sweet rooftop deck with views of downtown Minneapolis. Are there any repeat issues he sees taking a deal from design to breaking ground? Anything that either you've seen or that you see people kind of constantly come across? I, I think the biggest thing is, I think for, for people, for developers or for, for people who are going through the process who haven't done it before, I, you know, I, I tell people this a lot that 
development is very, you know, it's not rocket science, but it's very experience-based. And I think I've probably seen, I, I always tell people on your first deal, partner, always partner, because a good developer or even a, even a mediocre developer who's been through the process a bunch of times can save you so much heartache and unseen, you know, unknown things. I mean, I always, I tell people when we're talking about partnering or buying a site or whatever, there's going to be a hundred deal killers between today and the day you're stable. The difference between somebody like me who's been through the process is I can probably give you a, I can see about 96 of them coming. You know, you might yeah. only see four if you haven't been through the process, right? I mean, I'm not going to see all a hundred because every deal, there's a couple of things that come that, you know, nobody expected COVID, <laughs> COVID, a million other things. Right. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think that for me, that's the big one is just, you know, I had a call with somebody the other day who's looking for, for some assistance on a project and they haven't done any of the third party reports, but they're hoping to break ground in October of this year. And I'm like, yeah, you're going to be lucky if you break ground next spring. Like, you know, it's yeah. just, it's just that, stuff. that that's the main thing I see is people that haven't been through the process, not, really understanding kind of from beginning to end, as we talked about earlier. You've now done six deals. You've been on your own for four years, kind of looking back and maybe you've already said it. What are some of the kind of biggest surprises that you weren't expecting? Like what's maybe one thing that as you sit here four years from now, you're going, man, I just never expected this would happen. The honest <laughs> answer is that I was even in a position that somebody asked me that question. <laughs> yeah. That's a good I mean, answer. I like, as I told you earlier, my my business plan or my 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 wildest dream was a couple of consulting gigs to keep some food on the table and maybe one project. I mean, yeah. the fact that I had sick, I mean, I, I can't even wrap my head around it. And yeah. it wasn't, you know, as I said earlier, I, I, I'm literally the lucky, probably the luckiest real estate developer or investor in the whole United States. I mean, awesome. given given what my last three and a half, four years have been. And there's no way I could have predicted it. There's no way I could have planned for it. it. It's been a complete surprise. I mean, I'm extremely, extremely grateful for it. And I'm going to build from it. And, you you know, I'm going to, I'm very grateful, but it's been a big surprise. I think, and I think the other thing, I, I think I maybe mentioned this earlier too, is just the reception I've gotten. I mean, you know, of the six projects I've done, three of them have been nominated for project of the year here. So you know, cool. I mean, it's just like, what? Like, <laughs> how, how does that happen? I mean, yeah, and it was never part of the plan. It's just like, so, I mean, that, that to me has been the biggest surprise that A, anybody cares what I have to say and B, that, you know, uh, I've gotten any sort of positive feedback on any of the work I've done because it's just, it's just absolutely blown my mind. So Dude, you're, that, you're humble. Best surprise by far. I love it, man. Very humble. All right. One more question and then two personal ones and we'll bring it home. You're the first buddy that I have from Minneapolis. Uh, we're kind of a year post some, some major civil unrest that was going on up there. One, just how did it impact you? And as it relates to your business, has it changed how you think about your business at all? Or was it kind of a moment in time and we've gotten stronger and better from it? And we're moving on. It was intense. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I'll remember the date, you know, March 13th, because that's that's when kind of COVID, you know, became mainstream, so to speak. Yeah. That's when the MB, you know, every, everything, that's when it was like, okay, this isn't a, 
you know, even as, as soon as two or three weeks before that, it was still like, eh, is this a real thing or what? You know, who knows? I mean, and, and again, your view, views on that are, are, are separate, but just the fact that it became a national or worldwide situation, right? I mean, that yep. was that was tough. I had four projects under construction when that happened. You know, it was brutal. I mean, I, I <laughs> first couple months were really tough to figure out. And it was just a lot of sitting and waiting because no one knew what was going to happen. And then to have the tragedy in Minneapolis that we had 60 days after COVID started was just, I mean, it, it was almost unbelievable. I mean, right. It was unbelievable. Yeah. And it was interesting because I, I do li- I live in the city of Minneapolis. I live, you know, I have projects less than a mile away from, from where the tragedy took place. Um, I live th- maybe three miles at the most. I'm right. I mean, I'm right there. And, you know, as the civil unrest grew and grew, um, then I understand it. I mean, it, it was a tragedy. It was a murder and, and it was it was bad. And I understand. I understand it. And I understand the angst and the, and the anger and the feelings. You know, it started to spread kind of from that node out through. And I, I mean, the world saw this right throughout the whole city. And Right. It got to, you know, thank I'm I'm very, very, very fortunate that it never made it kind of to my house, my neighborhood, my street. Um, mm-hmm. but there was a couple of nights prior to the National Guard kind of really getting their footing here that I slept on my couch with a baseball bat, you know, because it was yeah. it was scary. Wow. And I think the biggest eye opener for me was realizing kind of my privilege and all that, where yeah. It occurred to me, and it, it you know, it, it, it is what it is. I wish I had figured this out sooner, but that there's a lot of people who that's their daily life. And it put a lot of things in perspective for me. It, it really made me realize, you know, how fortunate I am, how fortunate a lot of the people I know are. And, and we really have a duty to, to do what we can to help bring others along. Um, we, we, Jeff and I have tried to do that in our business where we've you know, we've, we've, we've had our architects hire people of color. We've, we've we kind of pushed our builder to go out to different, you know, subs that maybe they normally wouldn't have. Um, we're, tr- we're trying to, to incorporate. We see our role as, as, as some of the lucky ones to try to bring others along, you know, in this as well. So that, that, that's been a real big piece for, for me and for us. And I, I think, you know, Minneapolis is, is coming back. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it was a tough year. There's no question. Um, a lot of developers are, are, are now in the suburbs. Um, and, and I, you know, I, I'm admittedly out there looking as well. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to say I'm not, <laughs> but I also, you know, my next deal is, is in the city. You know, yeah. I've got another site in pre-development that'll be built, big deal that'll be built in the city. Um, yeah. I, I think, you know, we had 10,000 units delivered in 2020. We've got 9,500 scheduled to be delivered this year. And then next year, it actually dropped the, the projections. I mean, obviously, that can change, but the projections are down to about half of that next year, maybe 4,000, 5,000 units delivered. So I, I think some of the, the minor softness we're seeing right now or some of the challenges, I, I actually am pretty bullish You know, on, on 2023, 2024, 2025. I think we're going to see a good run here in the city. Yeah, it's a tough situation and and watching it from Texas was scary. And actually, I think you and I met shortly after that. And uh, I remember you telling me that story about the baseball bat and kind of being freaked out for a couple nights there. I, I Again, watching from afar, it just seemed really intense. And I'm glad to hear the city's healing. I uh, appreciate you sharing that. All yeah, right. We're on the way back. 
What's the best book you've ever read? I'm going to name two, if that's okay. Um, for, di- for different reasons. Okay. okay. Two for different reasons. One, and this is, this is probably as absolutely cliche as it gets, but I will admit that Rich Dad, Poor Dad probably changed my life. I was 22, acting, trying to figure out, 22, 23, trying to figure out next steps. And I think I had mentioned, you know, business wasn't a thing discussed in my house. I didn't yeah. know people owned, like, it just, it was one of those books that it totally shifted my mental paradigm. Where I was like, oh my God, there's a whole other world out here of way of people doing things. And it just, I mean, it was absolutely mind blowing. So it would be disingenuous of me to not mention that book because it okay. really did, you know, do that. Another one that I, and I am maybe misquoting the title, but it's Emotional Intelligence or EQ. Uh, I think Daniel Goldman is the author. Mm-hmm. And one of the, and maybe this quick personal story, I mean, one of the, one of the things that's, you know, I, I think I've suffered a little bit from imposter syndrome in, in real estate where, you know, I didn't go to business school. I didn't have, I don't have an undergraduate real estate degree. You know, I kind of came into it sideways. I've kind of had a, a lumpy, you know, career path. And, and now I'm doing, the, I'm the design guy. You know, it's, it's just, it's been a little different for me. And I think that book, I read that book a long time ago and it, it made me realize that, you know, there's more to it than experience and, and IQ. Sometimes, you know, having those intangibles go a long way. And and I'm not here to say that I do, but um, that was a real eye opening book for me. I think as well to realize that there's other methods to get things done. Yeah, I think uh, not that being you know worth a hundred billion dollars is the ultimate goal, but I think like on the Forbes list, like nine percent of people on the Forbes list actually like finished college and you know went the traditional route. Um, we all kind of figure it out differently. All right, dude, this has been uh, more than I could have expected. I'm super grateful. What, what is the best way that people can uh, find you or your company or reach out to you? I mean, admittedly, now it's probably Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I've been quote unquote finishing our Hall Sweeney website for about the last three months. So it's not that. <laughs> <sighs> not done yet um i i'm remiss to say linkedin because it's just the random the random dm i mean it's just i don't know yeah. <laughs> um hit me up on twitter yeah i'm just sean d sweeney on twitter it's easy to find um if not i mean people can email me sean d sweeney at gmail pretty simple as well so one of those two ways is the best best way to track me down awesome man thank you so much for your time today this was this really was enjoyable yeah thank you so much for having me i i just Really honored and grateful that you'd want me. So I appreciate it very much. Hey, everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating, or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Ford Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.